this little book of Haggai um, is, uh, is short but powerful. It's powerful. Amen. It really is. And there is so much in this book. Uh, I knew as I sat down to study it, unlike some of the other shorter uh, minor prophets, uh, I just, I knew, I knew there would be enough material here just to spend this entire Sunday just dealing with the book of Haggai. And if you read the book of Haggai, hopefully you, you saw that. And uh, again, I would encourage you to be reading these books as we go through. And uh, you, you could, uh, this book of Haggai, you could have read in less than 10 minutes time the entire book. Uh, just two short chapters. And uh, I would encourage you again, even though um, we uh, do all of our public reading from the King James, sometimes it does help to get um, a modern rendering to just clarify some of the more archaic language. And it's, it ought to be a resource. Uh, let the King James be your main Bible, but have some resources Praise God. Your only time of Bible study should not be when you come to church. You ought to be studying the Bible at other times. Well, hallelujah. You ought to be studying the Bible on your own. It should not just strictly be limited to when you come to church. Praise God. So get you some resources. If you don't have a Strong's Concordance, that ought to be number one on the list. Get your Strong's Concordance. Exhaustive. Make sure it says exhaustive. Every word in the Bible is in that book. And so um, if you want to find a scripture, you can find it in Strong's. And uh, it would also save me a few phone calls and emails if you'll get you a Strong's Concordance. I have folks call me all the time. Where is that scripture? Well, I'll do my best to help you, but get your Strong's. And uh, you can find it. And if you're not finding it in Strong's, it's because you're not quoting it right. There's some word you're, you're misusing. But it's there. Get you a Strong's Concordance. Get you another one or two translations of the Scripture. Be careful about those. And um, if you need some recommendations, see me after service. Some of them are based on other manuscripts that delete a lot of the Scripture. And you want to be very careful about picking those up. Amen. Others are just simply a man's idea of what the Bible means, and you don't want those. So be very careful, but I can give you some recommendations. But anyhow, Haggai chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses here as our text this morning. Haggai 1, beginning with verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now this is a crucial verse, and we'll, we'll talk more about it, but this verse is crucial to everything that's being said throughout the book of Haggai. It's one of the reasons why I chose it as my text. The people say, the time is not come. 
the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house, or the Lord's house, lie waste. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Amen. Praise God. And so today we are going to examine this book of Haggai. And I do feel like the Lord wants to talk to us this morning. Amen. From this ancient prophet, there are things that God wants to say to the modern church. Let me say that again. From the ancient prophet, there are messages for today's church. We need to understand that. We need to comprehend that. God wants to talk to us today. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today, can we? Everybody, let's talk to the Lord together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather here with your people, to feel the sweet presence of the Lord, and God, to be able to open your word, for your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. There is instruction. There is correction. There is direction. There are answers to be found in the pages of your blessed word. I pray speak to us today. Use me, God, as your servant. Let me be your mouthpiece to this church today. God, I ask you, Lord, have your way in this service. Touch hearts, change lives, save souls. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let's praise him together, everybody. Hallelujah. Let's worship the Lord, everybody. We need the touch of God in this service. Come on. We need the touch of God here this morning. I don't want to just go through the motions of a service. I want the Holy Ghost to touch our hearts. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. 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 God bless you. You may be seated. Hallelujah. I I want to do things a little bit differently this morning than than what I have done in the past uh, in dealing with these books of the Bible as we have gone through the Scripture. Uh, Generally, I've given you a little bit of of foundation and then gotten into the Scripture. But uh, today, I feel like that for us to really understand the book of Haggai, I need to really lay a, a very thorough foundation There are a number of things that you need to know about this book before the verses make sense to you. So please bear with me this morning. I'll get into the meat of the book in a few minutes. But I feel like this is important for us to cover some of these things. Uh, Haggai opens the very last section of the Minor Prophets. Um, This prophet belongs to the latter part of the exile in Babylon. Uh, He was born in Babylon. Uh, He was in the company of Zerubbabel. Some of you that name kind of rings a bell. (laughs) Hallelujah, excuse the pun. But uh, Zerubbabel, um, it kind of rings a bell in in your minds because uh, there's a little scripture that's probably running around in the back of your mind there that involves that name, Zerubbabel. Uh, Something to the effect of, it's not by might, it's not by power. Uh, But 
Zerubbabel was, was important. And, and Haggai was, was um, in the company of Zerubbabel, uh, who returned to Jerusalem under the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. So he began his ministry during the rebuilding. And, and he was the first prophet in Jerusalem after the Jews returned from their exile. Is everybody with me? Up until this point, you'll remember we started with the early prophets. We started uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, these men were prophesying either prior to or at the time of the captivity into Babylon. But now we've, we've run the gamut. We've talked about the prophets that prophesied during the exile. Now we are coming to the close of this time period. And these last three prophets, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, these men are at the close of this time period uh, when the Jews are returning or have returned to their native land. And so it's important that we understand that. Uh, now, I want to tell you, and, and to me, and I know sometimes some of the things that interest me don't interest everybody, but, but, you know, I read a lot of commentaries. I do a lot of research in preparing for this session. Uh, and generally, every prophet that we've read uh, and every story that we've read, there's been a difference as to the time of the ministry. They weren't able to set an exact date. But can I tell you, every Every commentator, every book I read, without exception, set the date of Haggai's prophecy at 520 B.C. Everyone without exception. The reason why it is so clear is because Haggai makes very strong use of dates throughout these two chapters. Now, if you read the book, you notice that. If this is the first time you heard it, it's because you didn't read the book. But throughout his prophecy, he's constantly making references to dates. And, and so it's very easy to pinpoint the year of Haggai's prophecy. And, and it was 520 years before what men generally thought was the birth of Christ. Um, of course, you understand, and we may get into this when we get into the New Testament, that uh, later calculations found out that whoever set that calendar was off by about four years. And um, as strange as it sounds, Jesus Christ was actually born probably about four years B.C. Now that used to give me problems because I would read uh, in encyclopedias or things, they would say Christ was born four years before Christ. And I'm saying, now how can this be? Um, a little time and education helped me to understand how this is. Somebody was wrong. They set the whole calendar. The whole world followed that calendar. And it was all based on a misconception. Um, so, anyhow, about 520 years before the current calendar um, considers year one was the year that Haggai prophesied. That is important, and we'll talk about why it's important in just a little while. Now, most of the, the, the Old Testament prophets, as I said, preached before the captivity, um, during the exile, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel prophesied, and then we come to this time at the close of the exile. 
And, and the prophets in the past, and we've dealt with this. I don't want to be redundant, but for the sake of those that have not been in our adult class, there are things I need to say. Leading up to the exile, those prophets, and even during some of the period of the exile, those prophets had to constantly uh, reproach Israel and rebuke Israel because of their idolatry. Haggai doesn't deal with that at all. There is no mention in Haggai's book of the people... Um, worshiping idols and and so it's a different thing altogether his message is totally different than the message of the other prophets uh he's still dealing with problems and you know as long as you deal with people you're going to deal with problems i've heard people tell i've had people tell me oh there's so many problems in the church i'm going to go to church somewhere else well, i want to tell you something If you find a church where there are no problems, it's because nobody attends church there. You've just walked into an empty building. And once you walk in it, you just messed up the record. There's now problems in that church. Because you have problems. Somebody said, there's a lot of drama in that church. Anywhere there's people, there's drama. Life is a drama. You're not going to find a church anywhere that doesn't have situations that have to be dealt with. It's everywhere. Rather than asking, is there problems there? You really ought to be asking, is it being dealt with? That's a different scenario. Some places you can go, there's all kinds of problems and nobody cares. And the problems get worse. Other places you go, at least somebody's trying to get things straightened out. And that's crucial. That's important. Praise God. So Haggai's dealing with problems, but it's not the problem of idolatry. He's dealing with people that are too comfortable the way they are. Well, hallelujah. Just let the cat out of the bag. I told you we have a message from an ancient prophet for the modern church. That's it. People that are too comfortable with the way things are. Well, we'll talk more about it in just a little while. Amen. They were more interested in making themselves more comfortable than they were doing the work of God. And so this little book, this little book, two chapters long, really has four discourses, four sermons, if you please, in these two chapters. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but each of these discourses is definitely dated. Haggai tells you exactly when the sermon starts. All right, follow with me. Got your Bibles open? This is Bible study time. Book of Haggai. Let's look at it. Haggai 1 and 1. In the second year of, in the Darius, second year of the Darius the king. In the sixth, sixth month. In the first day, first day of the month. month. Alright. This is what I want you to see. He starts out. He tells us exactly when this starts. Second year of Darius the king. Sixth month. First day of the month. Alright. We go now to chapter 2 verse 1. In the seventh month, seventh month, in the one and twentieth, one and twentieth day, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai. All right, so so now we're in the seventh month, 
and the 21st day. Okay? Now we go to chapter 2, verse 10. And the four and twentieth day of the ninth month. Now the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month. In the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord by Haggai. All right, and then verse 20. And again the word of the Lord came into Haggai in the four and twentieth day. And the four and twentieth day of the month. All right. So so this is what I'm telling you. Every one of these, and each of these verses that I just read to you really is the beginning of a new message. And he tells us exactly when these messages are preached. He gives us the exact date on which he preached the sermon. All right? Now, I don't know if you notice this, but the first message, chapter 1, verse 1, said it was the sixth month, the first day. Chapter 2, verse 10 says it is now the um, ninth month and the 24th day. So what we have here is a period of a little over three months. That's all that we know about Haggai's ministry. Some three or four months that he prophesied. That's all we know about him. It lasted, his ministry, to our knowledge, lasted a very short, I mean, you're talking less than half a year here, folks. He just comes on the scene, he does his job, and we never hear from him again. But the fact is, we are hearing from him again. And the fact is that in that short amount of time, he left a legacy and he left a message that is still vital for the New Testament church. Listen, I I, I cannot stress enough. So many times the devil convinces us that what little bit we're doing really doesn't amount to much. But I'm going to tell you, God still knows how to take a little boy's lunch and feed a multitude. God still knows how to take the little bit of effort that we can produce. Well, hallelujah. If we'll give it to the master, God knows how to take it and do great things with it. Well, praise God. Praise God. Amen. And so even though his ministry was brief, as far as we know, his impact was long-lasting and phenomenal. Amen. It really was. And I say that without hesitation. It was phenomenal because we see something in Haggai's ministry that we just don't see in most of the prophets. And I'll show you what that is later on in the lesson. But but it's, it's astounding. I'm serious. When you've been going through the Bible and you've been looking at these Jews and you've been looking at the way they've treated the preacher, what happens in Haggai's book is astounding. We'll talk about it. Amen. The book of Haggai is really a momentous little fragment. Uh, it, 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 even though it covers this little period of just a few months, it puts on record. Now hear this. One of the most crucial turning points of the divine dealings with Jerusalem and the covenant people. A turning point in the history of the Jews takes place in these few months under the ministry and direction of Haggai. It was in 520 B.C. that this prophet stood and voiced his message to the leaders of the returned Jews. It had been some 
uh, 14 to 16 to 19. Again, this is where commentators disagree as to when this act, the proclamation went forth. They're sure when he prophesied. They're not entirely certain, but somewhere between 15 to 19 years, 14 to 19 years, uh, depending on who you read, uh, there had been a proclamation by the Persian emperor Cyrus that told the Jews they could go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. And so some 50,000 Jews had returned to Judea under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And they were there to implement the royal proclamation. You can read about that in Ezra chapters 1 and 2. We talked about that when we discussed the book of Ezra. Um, Two years later, the foundation of the temple was laid. And and, uh, you remember that story. The old men wept. The young men shouted. When they laid the foundation. All right. All of this happened before... Haggai preached. This is important that you understand this. All that happened before. Uh, That had been a number of years. A decade had passed. Since they had laid that foundation, some wept, some cried. A decade had passed. They were excited ten years ago. They were thrilled over the revival that it looked like was coming ten years ago. But now... Now it's a different story. Because now there's a foundation there, but that's all. Nothing's happened. They haven't seen the things they thought they were going to see. In fact, you know, there were a number of adversaries among the Samaritans that started spreading rumors. You know, we talked about this in the book of Nehemiah. Talked about Sanballat and Tobiah and these guys that rose up. And they're spreading rumors on the Jews. And finally they got the king to stop the work. And so what looked like a great revival that was about to take place had come to a screeching halt. And now had been dormant for over ten years. Things are in bad shape. The temple remained unbuilt. The foundation was silted with debris. It was overgrown with weeds. And now the Jewish people have just accepted the situation and decided this is all we're ever going to have. Oh, I hope somebody's listening this morning. You ought to be well rested. You got an extra hour of sleep last night. If the earthquake didn't wake you up. Hallelujah. Um, anyhow, don't want to lose my train of thought. But, but they looked at, at one point they were excited. They were thrilled because it looked like revival was here. Then everything came to a screeching halt. And the people finally got to the place. They said, you know, this is all we're ever going to see. This is all we're ever going to get. We might as well just be satisfied with what's happening now and not even push for anything else. Does this sound familiar? They were rejoicing over what was, but they didn't see any blessedness in their present and no hope in their future. We're never going to get anything else accomplished. This is it. And so the entire purpose... Of Haggai's ministry. This is why I had to go through all this to bring you to this place before we could actually start talking about the book itself. The entire purpose of Haggai's ministry was to stir up the hearts of the people of God and 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 go back and get busy doing what they should have been doing all along. 
It's not over, people. It's not done. It's not finished. There is a work to be accomplished. Somebody needs to get stirred up and go back and do the work of God. And this is what Haggai was sent to do. Stir them up. Get them back to the business of working for God. Well, hallelujah. Now, as I said, there are four separate discourses in Haggai's message. Three of them are found in the second chapter. So you've got the whole first chapter is sermon number one. Then you've got sermons two, three, and four in chapter two. Very short. Haggai and I don't have much in common. Haggai knew how to preach a short sermon. I have never learned that. Somebody told me one time, said there is no such thing as a bad 15-minute sermon. I've tried to remember that. I just had never been able to accomplish it. Very Scott. And I won't accomplish it this morning either, so don't get your hopes up. Hallelujah. All right. Now, Haggai, let's talk about, here's the outline of the book of Haggai. Chapter 1, all of chapter 1 is a call to completion. A call to completion. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is a call to courage. A call to courage. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, a call to cleansing. A call to cleansing. And then, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, which is the end of the chapter, is a call to the chosen one. You got that? Four sermons here. A call to completion. A call to courage, a call to cleansing, and a call to the chosen one. So, let's start in chapter 1. Still got your Bibles open. Haggai chapter 1. We're going to start looking at this book and looking at some of these verses here as we work our way through. I'm excited about dealing with this book. I promise you, I feel like there are some things here we need to hear. Oh, praise God. All right, so, get your Bibles open. Uh, What we are looking at here, um, the Jewish people have become discouraged by the opposition from their neighbors. Uh, They had become indifferent about rebuilding the temple. They decided just not to even try. And so you know what they started doing? They started building their own houses and embellishing their houses. We'll talk about that in a while. But they're making their houses really nice. They had the energy to work. They weren't lazy people. But they had just decided that there's no use trying to build God's house. So let's take that energy and build something for ourselves. Haggai stands up and and, and urges them to consider the consequences of their misplaced priorities. He points out that it is their selfish concerns that have brought about economic hardships. Including drought. Now, here's where I say this is why I find something. And we'll talk more about this. I don't want to. In fact, I'm going to leave that alone. We'll come to it a little later on because I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's, let's look at it. Haggai chapter 1. 
Um, of course, verse 1 identifies the time, the place, the prophet. Let's go to verse 2. The opening words of Haggai's prophecy, he confronts the people over something very important. Haggai 1 verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. All right. The people say, The time is not come. I want to tell you what Haggai's dealing with. Haggai is dealing with these people's misapplication of prophecy. Um, 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21. Look at this. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she, keep, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. Alright, so the prophet said the land had to lay desolate for three score and ten years or seventy years. The land had to be desolate for seventy years. That was prophecy. When Haggai first started his prophecy, it had not quite been 70 years. Close. When he first started. Very close, but not quite 70 years. So the people, long before this 70-year period had passed, had gone back and started rebuilding the temple, ran into opposition and just gave up. And then they got this mindset, oh well, the prophet said it would be 70 years, so until that 70 years come, there's no need in us doing anything. Let's just sit around and wait for the 70 years to be fulfilled and then, uh, you know, the temple will go up. We'll wait until God's timing and then we'll do what we need to do. But until then, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Now, it is important for us to understand that they were making presumptions about this prophecy. And whatever semblance of reason there may have been at first, it had reached a place that it had just simply become an excuse for negligence. We're just not going to do anything because it's not time. Let me tell you something, church. There is a right attitude and a wrong attitude toward prophecy. Hear me this morning. There's no question that Inspired prediction is infallible. If God said it, it's exact, it's going to happen. But what is not infallible is our interpretation of it. When Jeremiah said it's going to be 70 years, it was going to be 70 years. But that doesn't mean that God didn't want the people doing anything until 70 years had passed. It's kind of like what I preached to you Thursday night. We have to reach a place where we start preparing for what God's going to do. We got to get some things ready. We got to get the house in order. Just because the land had to lay desolate for 70 years doesn't mean that God didn't want a house standing there when the 70 years was over. So it was their interpretation of prophecy that Haggai had to address. They said, it's not time. It's not time. You know, the Apostle Paul had to deal with the same problem. The way people interpreted prophecy caused a problem in their lifestyle. Paul had preached the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. To Thessalonica, he preached the coming of the Lord. The Lord's coming. 
And I believe he is coming. In fact, just last night after we felt the house shake, I don't know how many of you felt it last night. We were sitting in our living room and felt our whole house shake. Um, I guess about 1030 last night, whatever time it was that earthquake hit in Oklahoma. And we literally felt the, the, the whatever you call it, aftershocks or whatever here. And, and um, knew it was happening when it happened. And, and um, I, I was in discourse with, a, with a, a minister, Brother Hardman from Tulsa. And Brother Hardman asked me, he said, did you all feel that earthquake? And I said, yes, sir. And then the next thing I said was, Jesus is coming soon. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there shall be earthquakes in diverse places. It's one of the things Jesus said we need to look for. Now, I'm telling you, the Lord's coming. And I'm telling you, we better get ready for his return. But Paul had preached it so hot and so heavy that you know what some of them did? Some of those people in Thessalonica quit their jobs and said, we'll just stay home and pray all day. And we'll just get ready for the Lord's return. Now, I was reading just the other day, uh, I was reading a letter from an elder preacher. And he was talking about back in, uh, I think it was the, may have been the late 50s, early 60s, that they were, they were at a conference and the preacher had preached the return of the Lord so, so strong and so heavy that there were literally mothers who refused to buy school supplies for their kids that fall because they believed the Lord was coming that soon. Now, this is the problem. The prophecy of the Lord's return is still true. It was their interpretation of prophecy that was wrong. And the way they responded to their interpretation of prophecy that was wrong. When Jesus said, occupy until I come, he didn't mean sit there and do nothing. That word occupy is a military term. You need to be taking new territory until the day I come. This is what the Jews got wrong. We'll just wait till 70 years pass and then... Kind of like some folks have done the same thing. Well, you know, Paul said that day shall not come except there be a great falling away and the man of sin be revealed. So I'm going to wait till the man of sin's revealed and then I'll get ready. Oh, no, no, no. That's a wrong interpretation. Prophecy's right. But your interpretation, your handling of it's wrong. And this is what Haggai was called to address. He said the people say the time has not come. That the Lord's house should be built. It's just not quite 70 years yet. So let's just sit here and do what we want to do. Amen. I didn't. I, uh, this is. Um, I was dealing with Paul and, and Thessalonica. And uh, let me tell you. how. Here's how Paul dealt with that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. It's just a good opportunity for me to get this in. For even when you were. Uh, for even when we were with you. This we commanded you. That if any would not work. Neither should he eat. You know that's in your Bible. Did, did you know that's in your Bible? Did everybody know that's in your Bible? Yes, sir. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Disorderly. Working not Working all, not at all. But are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort. We command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. That with quietness, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Well, well, well. This is in the Bible. I'm not telling you we should not be compassionate. I'm not telling you we shouldn't care for people. We need to help those who cannot help themselves. Paul was not dealing with people who cannot help themselves. Paul was dealing with people who would not help themselves. 
there is a difference. These guys out there to occupy Wall Street and occupy all this other nonsense that are, that are upset because they borrowed $100,000 and think everybody ought to pay off their loans. Um, Paul said that with quietness, they work. The Riggin Revised Version. Shut up and get a job. All right, all right, I know, that's rude, that's, that's tough. But anyhow, that's what the Bible says. Quit whining. Find some way, some way to take care of yourself. Quit expecting the world to give you handouts. All right. You see, they, they were using spiritual, oh, the Lord's going to come, so we have to, st- we got to pray, we got to get ready for the Lord's coming. No, you're just lazy. That's the problem. Want everybody else to take care of you while you claim to be spiritual. All right, I'm not going to get off on that. All right, let's. So, so here's how Haggai, the Lord through Haggai, deals with this attitude of the people when they say, the time has not come that we should build the Lord's house. Here's the response. Verses 3 and 4. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, it is time for you, O ye. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this li- this house lie waste? All right, now look. Let's leave this verse up here for a moment. They were saying it is not time to build the Lord's house. So the Lord said, "All right, we want to talk about time. Let me ask you a question: Is it time for you?" To dwell in your sealed houses. I looked up that word sealed. And, and we would think that it was like S-E-A-L-E-D. Sealed. Like closed. Enclosed with a roof. But really the word means more than that. Um, the word really means expensive and embellished. So here's what they were saying. God was saying, how is it? In fact, some of the commentators talked about the very expensive kinds of wood that they had gone to using now as they built their houses. And they wanted it to look elaborate and fancy. and, And here was God's house, nothing more than a foundation overgrown by weeds. And they were just decorating their homes to the hilt. And God said, let me ask you a question. You say it's not time to do anything for me and look at all the time you're spending on yourself. Something's wrong with this picture. You know, this is just as true today as it was back then. Matthew 6 and 33. But seek ye first. But seek ye. Wait a minute. But seek ye. But seek ye. But seek ye. Come on, I want you to get this church. But seek ye. He didn't say second. We've got time and money to do everything we want to do. And then we try to find time and try to find money to help the church. God asked a very pointed question. 
how is it that you've got all this time and energy and money to fix up your house and do everything you want and just make it nicer and nicer and more and more impressive and look over here at my house and all that there is. Look, look, look at it. Something's wrong here. Seek you first. The kingdom of God. Now, God then began to let the people know that there were consequences for them not doing what God wanted them to do. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider Consider your ways. Another translation said, Think about what's happening. Another translation said, don't you see what's happening to you? So while you sit there building up your own houses and doing your own thing and seeking your own good, I want you to realize what it's costing you. Read. You have sown so much. You've sown much. And bring in little. God God said, haven't you noticed? You get out here and plant your fields and your vineyards and... You just don't hardly produce a crop at all. You eat, but you have not enough. It, it seems like no matter how much you eat, you're still hungry. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. Y- y- your thirst is never quenched. You clothe you, but there is none warm. Nothing you are doing ever seems to be adequate. And he that earneth wages. And when you earn wages, earneth wages to put it into a you bag. You put with it holes. into a bag with holes. In other words, you get your paycheck, but when you try to pay the bills, what happened to all the money? What happened to the money? I, I seemed like I should be making enough to pay. I don't, I don't understand. God said, hello, I'm trying to get your attention. All of this is happening because you put yourselves before me. I'm taking that money away from you. that's consuming your crops I'm making sure you don't have what you need because you won't make sure I have what I want hey church he's still God he's still supposed to be number one in our lives now God goes on to tell him what else is going on verses 9 to 11 you look for much. You look for much. And lo, it, came it comes to little. to little. And when you when you bring home, it home, God said, upon. "I just, I just blew on it. I just scattered it." Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Why? Because of mine house. I'll tell you why. Because my house is waste. And you run every. And you run home and take care of your own business. Therefore, the heaven over you. Therefore, because of this reason, the heaven is stayed from dew, and the earth and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought. I called for a drought on the land, upon the mountains, mountains, upon the corn, corn, upon the new new wine, and the oil, and the that which the ground brings forth, and on men, and on cattle, and on all. Now listen, here's what God said. God said, because you won't do what I tell you to do. I'm seeing to it that you never have enough. Um, you think it might be time to do a little 
introspection. Think it might be time to consider your ways. I don't want to see a show of hands this morning, but I wonder if there's anybody listening to this preacher that says, you know, it seems like I just can't ever make enough money. Seems like I can't ever get my bills paid. Seems like no matter what I do, I cannot get ahead. I don't, I don't want to see a show of hands, but is it possible that God is blowing on what you earn? Is it possible that God is the one that's pulling this stuff away from you? Because God's got some things he's waiting on you to do for him. And you're concerned about doing things for yourself. Now listen, God is a just God. God is an equitable God. If he says to you, I'm going to see to it that you do not have enough because you won't do what I say. We need to understand that the opposite is just as true. If you do what God says, He'll make sure you have more than enough. Let me prove that to you. Go over to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. That there may be meat in... In my house. Make sure my house is taken care of. Alright? And prove me now herewith. And he said, and prove me. Say, say it the Lord of hosts. Uh-huh. If I will not, if open, I will you not open you the windows of heaven. And pour you, and out, a pour you out a blessing. That there, that shall, there not shall not be room enough to receive it. And I'll rebuke the devourer and for your sake. See, we often stop at verse 10, but we need to read on to verse 11. He said, and I will rebuke the devourer. Right. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine, Neither shall your vine cast her fruit. For the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Look, this is what God said. God told them through Haggai. He said, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to blow on what you earn. I'm going to destroy what you try to bring in. You're never going to have enough. But he comes along through Malachi and says, but if you'll do what I tell you to do, if you'll put me first, you'll pay your tithe, you'll do the things I tell you to do. God said, I'll make sure the windows of heaven are open and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake and I'll see to it you've got more than enough. So this is our choice. Put ourselves first. Meet our needs first. Pay our bills first. And spend the rest of our life struggling. Or put God first. This is why I taught many, many months ago. I taught you God doesn't just want 10%. God wants the first 10%. The first check you write. The first money you ought to take out of your paycheck ought to be your tithe before you do anything else. This is God's. This is God's. 
End of discussion. It's not going anywhere. It will not pay grocery bills. It will not pay doctor bills. It will. This belongs to God. End of discussion. God said, if you'll do that, I'll see to it that the devourer cannot take away what's yours. And I'll open heaven and give you a blessing you can't even contain. So there's our, that's the only two choices we have. Put ourselves first and suffer or put God's, God's first and be blessed. That's our choices. I think I'll choose putting God first. Well, hallelujah. All right, now, let's go on. Verses 12 to 15. This is what I started to talk about a while ago, and I knew I was getting ahead of myself, so I I decided I'd just wait and deal with it. To me, this is one of the greatest testimonials recorded in the prophets. It is the last few verses of chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Let's let's read. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Oh, oh, well, you, you just... I, <laughs> that may not have stood out to anybody else. But you don't read that very much about these people. They obeyed! Hallelujah! They did what they were told to do! Oh, glory to God. Amen. You know, it's kind of like the old, old story. Some of you have probably heard it about the preacher that somebody found out every morning about 4 o'clock he was leaving his house to go somewhere. And the rumor got out and people began to spread rumors and talk and said, you know, he's going to visit some woman that's not his wife or he's doing this, he's doing that. And, and boy, I mean, the rumors were circling and, and finally somebody said, we're going to follow him. So they got up early in the morning, they hid where he couldn't see, and when he left his house at 4 o'clock, they pulled in discreetly behind him, and they followed him, and they watched him, and he drove to a train track and just sat there. A little while, the train came by. When it was done, he turned around drove back home. They said, I wonder if he knew he was watching. So they followed him. Day after day, that's what he did. He just drove to the train track and sat there, and when the train was gone, he turned around and went back. And finally, they went to him and confessed. Said, we've, we've had all kinds of thoughts about you. We want, but we can't figure this out. We've watched you every day get up at 4 o'clock and go and just pull up to that train track and then leave. What's going on? He said, you just don't know how it does my heart good to watch something that doesn't have to be pushed. Well, praise God. So that's why this verse may not have stood out to you. But this is shouting material. Zerubbabel, Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed. Well, hallelujah. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Well, thank God. Read. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you. And I'm with you. You've obeyed. I'm with you. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, their God. In the, on the fourth and in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius. All right, now again, you know, here's the man that's got all the dates. He's got them all written down. But this, this is important to me. All right, so so they did all this on the twenty fourth day of the sixth month. Do you remember when this prophecy started? Look again at verse one. He said it was in the second year of Darius, in the sixth month, the sixth month, in the, first the first day. day. Of the month. So so the sixth month, the first day. First day of the sixth month, he prophesies. He starts telling them, you better consider your ways. You better look at what's going on. God's not blessing you. God's cursing you because you won't do what you're told to do. It's time to do the work of the Lord. Then on the 24th day, 23 days later, it's just over three weeks. In about three weeks' time, something happens. And the people shake themselves and say, you know what? This preacher's right we got to go build God's house. This preacher's right. Hallelujah. we got to go do something to get ready. There is revival coming and we got to get ready for it. Well, after having rejected the prophetic messages of the past, the people now listen to the prophet. Well, I'm going to tell you, those 70 years in exile did something. Those 70 years in exile had an impact. I don't want God to have to put me into exile to get me to start obeying his word. But there's a different mindset among the people now. They've spent 70 years as captives, and all of a sudden some of them are saying, Hey, there is a better way to do things. Maybe we ought to obey God. Maybe we ought to just do what we were supposed to do all along. And they did. And God said, I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. Praise God. And so they did. Let's go on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is the second sermon. This is a call to courage. And, and, and this is about a month after the rebuilding had started up. And, and the people, uh, again, start getting discouraged. And the reason why they're discouraged now is because they remembered Solomon's temple. And the new temple wasn't nearly as nice. But the Lord encouraged them. Don't don't give up based on what it looks like. You persevere. You be courageous. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be faithful to my promises. In fact, i got a great promise I'm going to give you before we're done with all this. Let's look at it here. Verse uh, 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Look at this. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? All right, now this is a, this is a valid question. God is asking these people, is there anybody here that remembers what that first temple looked like? That was Solomon's temple. Now, do you remember anything about Solomon's temple? Let me just tell you one thing about it. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 22. And the whole house. And the whole house was overlaid with gold. Until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle, he overlaid with gold. So the whole house. 
You talk about gold. There was gold everywhere at Solomon's temple. Now these people come back to build a temple. These are, these are folks that have been in captivity. Many of them born as slaves. They don't have gold. They don't have money. They can't build a house that looks as nice as Solomon's did. They're giving it their best. They're doing the best they can. But it just doesn't look like what they remembered. And they start looking at it and they're just sick. This is all we can do. This is the best we can come up with. And so they just want to quit. They just, they just want to give up. So God speaks, verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Saith the Lord, and be strong, O jo- Be Joshua. strong, O Joshua. Joseph the high priest. And be strong. Be all strong, you all you people of the land. Saith the Lord, and work. And work. You, because I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit so my spirit you. remaineth among you. Fear ye not. Fear ye not. Here's what God says to them. I know you're feeling discouraged. I know you're feeling down. But don't forget this. I'm still here. And I'm still God. And I'm going to help you get this work done because I want it done. Quit looking at what you can't do. Quit looking at what you cannot accomplish. Quit looking at all the negatives. And understand the only thing you need to know. You've got me helping you. Nothing else matters. If God be for us. Oh, you're not getting this this morning. I said if God be for us. Who can be against us? Doesn't matter the size of the crowd. Doesn't matter the talents or lack thereof. What matters is, is God in our midst. And if God is in our midst, everything's going to be all right. In fact, (laughs) they're looking at a building. The old one was completely covered in gold. All the furnishings on the inside, gold. Everything gold. And now they're looking at a building, wood, brick. It doesn't, you know, they just don't have it. But God said, I'm with you. And he says in verse 8. The silver is mine. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine. And the gold is mine. You don't have it. But I do. I got everything you need. I've got everything you need. Whatever you like, God's got it. Well, God, I sure would like to do thus and so for you, but I don't have it to do. God's got it. I'm reminded of a dear precious saint. Well up in years, living on a fixed income. The church we were attending at the time was getting ready to start a building project. And, and they were being, the people were being encouraged to give, give, give. And this poor lady was barely scraping by. Barely getting by. She walked into a grocery store and they had a drawing for $100. dollars 
She said, you know what, Lord? If you let me win this, I'll just give the whole hundred to, to you. I don't have anything else to give. I can, I can barely get by now, but if you let me win this, I'll give every bit of it to you. Well, guess who won? The silver is mine, God said, and the gold is mine. See, some of you that have been praying about these publishers clearing house and getting all these emails from Nairobi or wherever they're coming from, you know, and you're ready to... Oh, God, if you let me win, I'll give you 25%. Uh Uh-huh. You know what you just told God? If you let me win, I'm keeping 75%. That's what you said. That's why God doesn't listen to those prayers. God's not interested in making you rich. In fact, how hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? Does your Bible still say that? God is not interested in making you rich. But he is interested in taking care of his house. And so God said to the Jews, you don't have silver and you don't have gold, but I've got all you need. And I can give you whatever you need. Just ask Peter. Remember? Lord, how are we going to pay the taxes? Go fishing. God knew how to put a coin in that fish's mouth. God didn't put the coin there to make Peter rich. He put the coin there to pay the bill that needed to be paid. God has Everything you need. So why should we worry? Why should we be discouraged? If God is on our side, if God is working for us and with us, we don't have to worry about one thing. Somebody hear this preacher this morning. I'm telling you, it's time to lift your head up. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. If you've got the Holy Ghost, you've got everything you need. You don't have to have a nicer car or a nicer home or nicer clothes. You've got God. Hallelujah. You don't have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. you got God. Well, it's the truth. Seek first the kingdom of God. I lost some of you on that statement. Hallelujah. And then, then this sermon closes on such a positive note. And I love this verse of scripture. Read for me uh, chapter 2 verse 9. The glory of the this glory, ladder. The looks of this latter house may not be what the looks of the former were. But let me assure you something far more important. The glory of this latter house shall be is going to be greater than of the former. Saith the Lord of hosts. And in this, and place, in this place will I give peace. Saith the Lord of hosts. Your trouble's over, your turmoil's over, your tears are over, your captivity's over. The house doesn't have to look like Solomon's house. I'm telling you, I'm going to put my glory there. Oh, 
tell you something about this God that I serve. Here's what he says. The glory of the latter is going to be greater than the former. That is a principle of God. God never does anything in a lessening way. No, no, no. That didn't sink in. Nothing God does diminishes. Whatever God does always gets better. Let me show you something. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Did I not put that in there? I'm sorry. Read. Yeah, what there. is the exceeding greatness of his power to us? Exceeding greatness of his power to us. believe according to the working of his mighty power. I know, I know, I know. Here's, here's, what, here's what I want you to understand. This phrase, the exceeding greatness... The word exceeding is actually surpassing. It means to transcend, to surpass, to exceed, to excel. One great Bible scholar that I hold in, in, in huge esteem, Elder James Gross, and he's going to be here in February, by the way, one of the best Bible teachers you've ever heard in your life, I promise you. Brother Gross, they just don't come any better than Elder Gross. Brother Gross made the statement talking about this verse of Scripture. He said, when you talk about this word exceeding, the exceeding greatness, he said, really, when you study that out, here's what it means. He said, it means that God continues to exceed his own greatness. However great God is, he only gets greater. And every time you think God's done the best that he can do, he does something better. And every time you think God has done the greatest thing he can do, he does something greater. That's why you'll never convince me that the New Testament church is going out of this world uh, lame and limp, amen, and sickly and weak. No, sir, it's going to be better than what they had in the book of Acts. That's the God I serve. Your God may be struggling, but mine's not. Mine just gets better and better and better and better all the time. You think God's blessed you so far? Honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm telling you there's greater blessings down the road than anything you've ever experienced. I'm telling you there's greater things that are coming. The exceeding greatness. God just keeps on exceeding his own greatness. Oh, hallelujah. Well, praise God. That's why he said the glory of the latter house. God's not going to do anything less. He's always going to do better. Come on, new life. We've seen some great things in the past. But I'm going to tell you, God's getting ready to outdo himself. I said, God is getting ready to outdo himself. Whatever we've seen is nothing compared to what we're going to see. Whatever we've experienced is nothing compared to what we're going to experience. 
You think of the greatest service we've ever had. It's not a drop in the bucket to what God's going to give us. You think of the most people you've ever seen get the Holy Ghost. It's nothing compared to what God's going to do. Oh, let's thank him. Let's thank him. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. All right. You see that? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, let's, let's move on. The next message that, that Haggai preaches starts in uh, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, and goes through verse 19. This is two months after the exhortation that the people would keep their courage. Two months later now. Um, he's, he's preaching again. So he preaches a message. About a month later, he preaches to him again. Two months later, he preaches to him again. And, and this time he uses the priests and the ceremonial law as an object lesson to further motivate the people to keep working on the temple. Let's, let's look at it here. Haggai chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now, Ask the, now priest the priest concerning the law. Concerning the law. Saying, if one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. All right. Here's, here's what he's, God is using an object lesson. And here's what he says. If you've got a holy priestly garment in your hand, that holy garment touches something that's unclean. Does the unclean get cleansed because it's touched the holy? The answer is no. God said, all right, well, let's reverse it. You've got something unclean and you touch something holy. Does the holy become unclean? Yes. Righteousness is not contagious. But unrighteousness is. Uh, Church, this is the reason why. This is one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why. Paul wrote what he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 to 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. unbelievers. Now listen, understand what he's saying. We've got to reach the lost. We've got to witness to the lost. But don't get yoked up with the lost. You want to know why? Because righteousness is not contagious. But unrighteousness is. You see, people, people all the time say, well, Jesus spent all of his time with sinners. First of all, that's not entirely true. He didn't spend all of his time with sinners. He spent some time with sinners. But he didn't spend all of his time with sinners. He spent far more time with those disciples of his. 
And he spent a whole lot of time teaching multitudes. And from time to time, you see him spending time with sinners. But let me tell you, there's something different between Jesus and us. In case you hadn't figured it out. Jesus is the incorruptible God. That's what the Bible calls him. Incorruptible. God cannot be corrupted. God is the only one that when he's holy and he touches the unholy, holiness rubs off. That's why when Jesus touched the lepers, if those Pharisees had tried to take him into the Sanhedrin and say, he just touched a leper, you can't do that according to the law. The leper's unclean. Jesus could take the stand and say, show me the leper. Bring him in. Show me the man that's unclean. He's not unclean anymore. When the woman with the issue of blood, who was considered unclean by the law, pushed her way through the crowd and touched his garment, Jesus should have been considered unclean according to the law. But it doesn't work with Jesus like it works with us. Jesus did not become unclean because of her. She became clean because of him. Because he is an incorruptible God. He can't be corrupted. Oh, hallelujah. But we can. We don't have the ability he had. We can become corrupted. And when you spend a lot of time with sinners. I'm telling you, they're going to rub off on you much more than you're going to rub off on them. This is one of the reasons why we we tell, don't date somebody that's a sinner. And by sinner, do we all understand there's only one way to be saved? Do we all understand? I know this is a judgmental statement according to some people. But you're judging me by calling me judgmental, so deal with it. There's only one way to be saved, and that's obedience to Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's no other message that saves. And so anybody that has not obeyed Acts 2.38 is a sinner. I don't care if they go to church. I don't care if they're a deacon in their church. I don't care. If they haven't repented, been baptized in Jesus' name, received the Holy Ghost, they're a sinner. And they will corrupt you if you get to hanging around with them too much. That's why, that's why, that's why, that's why. It's one of the reasons why Paul wrote what he did. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He's not just talking about people that believe in Jesus. He's talking about people that believe the gospel. The plan of salvation. Acts 2.38 You want to get yoked up with somebody Get yoked up with somebody that believes the message Church I know this sounds judgmental I know I take big chances And I know these messages are listened to on the internet And I know lots of folks Log into our website And we've got literally thousands upon thousands of hits Every month people are listening I know that So I know they take what I say Some of them And they really go to town with it But I don't care I'm just telling you 
This is one reason why we don't fellowship with liberal, loose churches that don't believe in holiness. Because their unholiness is going to corrupt us. Our holiness is not going to rub off on them. Well, hallelujah. I said it and I stand by it. Praise God. Amen. We've got to understand that as human beings, we are corruptible. And we don't pass off our holiness onto others. In fact, the only holiness we have came to us from God. It's not something we achieve by ourselves. God made us holy. And we can't pass that on to somebody else. God's got to make them holy. But they can sure pass on their unholiness to us. Why it makes me sick. Some of this garbage floating around Facebook and all this and these people claiming to be Christians and talk about all the movies they watch and all the the garbage they do and the filthy places they go. And then saints of God start looking at that and say, well, how come they're they're apostolic? Well, I don't know. You better be careful. Because I'm telling you, their unholiness can get on you. Well, I've still got a long ways to go, and I don't have very long to do it in. Um, but anyhow, I could go on. I could read the rest of this here. I won't take the time. But it's, it's just an interesting thing that Haggai deals with here. You know, he, he deals with how that uncleanness is passed on. In fact, several years ago, I preached a message to this church from this passage in Haggai, and I titled it, Don't Touch the Dead. Don't Touch the Dead. And I doubt any of you remember it, but, but um, I preached from this passage. And here's what I preached. The Bible says that touching a dead body brings on uncleanness. And the Bible says that the dead praise not the Lord. So if you've got people around you that don't worship... Be careful... Because they're dead. If they don't, now I'm not saying they have to run the aisles and they have to shout and they have to jump, but they have to worship. And if they don't worship, they're dead. The dead praise not the Lord. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. That's the two choices. If you're breathing, you're supposed to be a worshiper. If you're not worshiping, you're dead. And if you're dead, you're unclean. And I don't want to get by you. If I got to change pews, I want to find somebody that knows how to worship. If I got to move to the other side of the church, I want to sit by somebody that knows how to worship. All right, all right. All right, now, let me move on. The pivotal significance of the book of Haggai lies in the fact that this this is the very year in, in which this, let me, let me try to say that again. This year, 520 B.C., the year that Haggai prophesied, that very year, that very year marked 
the end of the 70 years of exile. Now, I said in the beginning, they were saying it's not time yet. But you remember me saying it was close. When he first started to prophesy, it had been almost 70 years. But before this book is over, we reach the exact date of the 70-year period. This is why those dates in Haggai are so important. Let me show you something. I'm going to go through this quickly. 2 Kings 25, verse 1. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his hosts, against Jerusalem, and pitched against it. And they built forth against it round about. Okay, now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month. All right? So there's an exact date that the captivity started. The exact date is given. And in fact, this tenth month, tenth day of the month, ninth year of his reign, this is repeated more than once in the scripture. Jeremiah 52 verse 4. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month. That ninth year, tenth month, tenth day of the month. Said it again in Jeremiah. Ezekiel. Now, let me say this. Ezekiel, now Jeremiah and the writer of Second Kings were firsthand witnesses. They knew exactly. I mean, they're there. They're telling, this is all written down by people who saw it happen. Ezekiel, you remember, was already in captivity. The only way Ezekiel could have this information is by divine revelation. But Ezekiel knew it. And knew exactly by divine revelation. Ezekiel 24 verses 1 and 2. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. The ninth year, the tenth month, the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. Son of man. Son of man. Write thee, write the, thee the name of the day, even, of, the even day. of this day. The king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem the same day. God said, make note of this day. It's all starting today. And make note of it. Because it's going to be 70 years. Now what we find, we get down to Haggai chapter 2 verse 10. And look at this. In the fourth and twentieth day, four and 20th day of the ninth of the month, ninth month in the second, the year, second of year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. saying, All right, now, now I want you to notice this. All right. So he says it was on the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius. Now, let's go to chapter 2 verse 15. And now I pray you, consider from this consider day and upward. from this day and upward, starting on this very day. You notice that? From this day forward. From before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. All right, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Consider now from this day Consider from this day and upward. From the 4 and 20th, the four and 20th day, of day of the ninth month. month. Even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it. Is this seen... Seed yet in the barn, yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day. From this day. Everyone say from this day. God said this is a specific day that everything's changing. This day things are going to be different. From this day and forward, I'm going to bless you. Now, why is this day important? And I don't have time to go back and reteach this lesson. How many of you remember when I taught on the book of Daniel, I pointed out the 70, the years, the 70 weeks of Daniel, and I dealt with how that in prophecy, a year is always 360 days. Though men's calendars don't go by 360 days, 
in prophecy, every prophetic year was 360 days. And I proved that with the scripture. How many of you remember that? I don't have time to reteach that. But any time in prophecy that you deal with a prophetic year, it's 360 days. Now, if you go back to the day that, that they uh, overthrew Jerusalem, that was on the 10th day of the 10th month, 589 B.C. And, and then you go to this day when, when he is prophesying on the 24th day of the 9th month of this year, 520 B.C. You count it up. You number the days. 25,200 days. You know what that comes out to be when you divide it by 360? 70 years. Exactly. God told the prophets, mark the day this starts. And then God says to Haggai, write it down. This is the day everything changes. It's been exactly 70 years as of today. It's over now. The curse is ended. The blessings begin. That's God. He's precise. He's exact. Hallelujah. God doesn't miss it even by one day. And I'm telling you, when God does things, he's got a way of doing it. He's got a time to do it. And when God gets ready, the Bible said, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. God had a day. God had a day. God had a day. And I'm telling you, God's got a day for everything he does. God doesn't do anything by accident. God doesn't do anything haphazardly. God doesn't do anything by coincidence. God's got a day. God said from this day and forward, mark it down, Haggai, from this day and forward, it's going to be different. Captivity's over. Things are changing. I'm lifting my anger. It's, it's a different world now. Well, hallelujah. And so Haggai marked a turning point in Judah's history. Judgment was over and blessing had begun. Then we close the book, verses 20 to 23, with this call to the chosen one. And this this message was actually preached on the same day the last message was. On that day when he told him, today the blessing begins, he then preached another message. And, and this message was directly to Zerubbabel, who was the leader of the exiles. Zerubbabel was also a descendant of King David. And, and so now Haggai has a message directly for this man. And, and let's read it, verses 21 to 23. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the, thron- overthrow the thrones of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And I will overthrow the chariots, and those that ride in them, and the horses, and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, In my that servant. day will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my, my servant, servant, the son of Shealtiel, and saith the Lord, and will make I'll thee a make signet. thee as a signet. For I have chosen because thee, Because I the Lord have of hosts. chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And so here was God's concluding message through this prophet, and it was simply this. It's been 70 years, but I want everybody to know I'm still in control. I'm still in charge of everything that goes on in this old world. Well, hallelujah. I'm going to tell you, whoever wins the election or loses the election doesn't really matter as much as who's sitting on the throne. Now, I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to cast my vote, and you should too. You should too. You should too. 
And it needs to be an informed vote. And you need to know why you're voting, who you're voting for, and all that, all that, all that. But I'm just going to tell you, in the end, God sets up one and brings down another. And I believe God is still in control of this entire earth. And everything that's happening is in accordance with His divine plan. I'm telling you, nations are toppling as I stand here and speak to you right now. There are kingdoms that are crumbling right now. There are countries that are in absolute despair. And this country is headed that same direction. And you know why? Because God's in control. And God's bringing everything to the point He wants it to be. He's getting everything ready for that false leader to arise. And it's about to happen. But I'm not worried and I'm not afraid. Because I know who's really in control. And he just happens to be my father. (laughs) I got an advantage over the rest of this world. Because my daddy's in charge. Well, hallelujah. He's going to take care of his children. Whatever comes, whatever goes, God's going to take care of us. So let the whole world fall apart. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's words. Well, hallelujah. They'll never pass away. The word of the Lord endureth forever. The word of the Lord endureth Oh, hallelujah. Amen. I don't care who rises to prominence. I don't care who ascends to power. They don't really have any power compared to the all-powerful, almighty, one and only true God whose name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Musicians come. Well, praise God. Praise God. And God said, Zerubbabel, you're my servant. And I'm going to make you as a signet. That was the seal of authority. I'm putting my seal of authority on you, Zerubbabel. I've called you to do a work, and I'm going to give you the power to do it. Hallelujah. That's the way God works. Whom he calls, he equips. Church, you know what? I want to tell you something. We have been called to this hour. Let's stand this morning. We have been called to this hour. This is, in my opinion, the greatest hour for the church of the living God. With, I know I've painted bleak pictures. I've talked to you about things that are falling apart. But as far as the church, I'm telling you, the darker this world gets, the brighter the church is going to shine. Did you hear what I just said? The darker the world gets, the brighter the church is going to shine. This is the church's greatest hour. And I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid. God knows how to make each of you a signet. God says, I'll give you the authority to accomplish what you need to accomplish. I'm going to give you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. So let come what may. God's in control. And God has brought us. We could have been born at any period in history. But we were born for this hour. Mordecai said to Esther, who knows. But what you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. I say to the church, God knows that you came into the kingdom for such a time as this. You're here now for a reason.
God chose you to face the dark days that are ahead. And God's going to give you the power and the grace and the strength and the wisdom and the anointing that you need to face them. If you'll just seek Him and put Him first. Let's lift our hands and love the Lord, everybody.